0: So Dan, before we get started today, we just wanted to take a moment to let everyone know about something new from Bloomberg. Do you wanna hear what it is? Go for it. Well, starting now, you can actually use our iOS app or Bloomberg's Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and the people you're reading about. So really, no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com backslash lens. Just about every indicator of the US labor market shows that jobs are plentiful and we're pushing the limits of how many people can be employed. But... Many Americans still aren't seeing the kind of lift to their wallets that we're used to with these kinds of numbers in the labor market. One possible explanation is that Americans are not organized in labor unions like they used to be. While unions have had some notable successes, like this year's deal by Hollywood writers that averted a strike— or the victory by 40,000 unionized Verizon workers last year, most American workers lack the bargaining power that they had throughout much of the 20th century. Today on Benchmark, we're speaking with an expert on this subject, Jared Bernstein, the former chief economist to Vice President Joe Biden. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor for Bloomberg News in Washington. Joining me as a guest co-host today is Patricia Leia, a reporter covering the U.S. economy, also here in D.C. Patty, thanks for being here.
1: Hi, really happy to be here. Thank you.
0: So, Patty, you've just covered the latest U.S. employment report that came out last Friday. What stood out to you in that report?
1: Yeah, so the headline number uh, for April was pretty good, especially after a disappointing March that was partly caused by that snowstorm we saw that affected most of the Northeast, Stella. Uh, But even as the main headline number uh, came above estimates and the jobless rate fell, wage growth was still a bit disappointing. It's just not at the level where it used to be in previous recoveries.
0: Right, and that's been a puzzle for a while now. The labor market is getting tighter and tighter, but we're we're just not seeing the kind of 3%, 4% pay gains that had happened in previous expansions when we had a tight labor market that kind of looked like this. So for more on this now, let's bring in Jared Bernstein. Since May 2011, he has been a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And before working in the Obama administration, he was at the Economic Policy Institute and was also deputy chief economist at the Labor Department during the Clinton years. He's also a pretty good basketball player, as I found out some years ago. Uh, Jared joins us by phone from his office in Washington now. Jared, thanks for spending time with us on Benchmark.
2: My pleasure, though. I have to say my teammates last night would not describe me as a pretty good basketball player. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, I'm uh, I'm better at the labor market stuff, I guess.
0: <laughs> well, we'll focus on that today. Good. So there, there are lots of things, Jared, that are different about having a job in America today. Compared with 40 or 50 years ago, was it really better back then, or are we looking through rose colored glasses at the past?
2: Well, in terms of the connection between wages and the job market, uh, things were better for uh, various groups of workers, not everybody. Uh, in fact, if you look at the gender wage differential, uh, women were earning a lot less uh, than men for comparable work back then than they are now, and there was still. Discrimination in the job market in other ways as well. But if you're simply talking about basically two things, uh, the tightness in the labor market and the way that tightness mapped on to people's paychecks, yeah, that was uh, that was better back then. So let me give you a, a pretty mind-blowing statistic on this. Uh, It used to be the case, you know, as Patty was saying, at least by some metrics, uh, the the current job market might be described as being at full employment. I'm not sure I quite see it, but that's certainly a legitimate thing to uh, declare. Well, since 1980, we've been at full employment less than 30 percent of the time. Before 1980, say uh, the the late 40s to 1980, we were at full employment almost 70% of the time. So we were much more likely to have a tight labor market, and a a tight labor market delivers some bargaining clout to uh, middle and lower wage workers. Of course, as you kind of mentioned in your intro, uh, we were more unionized back then as well. So economic growth mapped onto the paychecks of middle-wage workers uh, more uh, robustly then than it does now.
0: Let me uh, share some facts with our listeners from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The union membership rate, was at 10.7% in 2016, it was over 20% in 1983, and even the state with the highest union membership, New York, is at uh, just under 24%. The lowest is South Carolina at 1.6%. When, when you think about the economy being at full employment, how, how has that particular change affected the American worker? Are, are people not organized in unions to be able to take advantage of a full employment situation like they
2: used to be? I guess the way I look at it is a little bit differently. The, the In, in American-style job markets, you know, we have a kind of a more... Rigorous version of capitalism than they do in in other more social democracies. Uh, your paycheck is not just a function of how skilled you are, or your value added. That's kind of what they teach you in economics class, but uh, you know, that's part of it, no question. But it's also a matter of your bargaining power, your bargaining clout. And historically, there have been two factors that have contributed to the bargaining clout of middle and lower wage workers, or at least two factors. Uh, one is a very tight labor market. And as I mentioned earlier, that's been uh, very much the exception, not the rule uh, over the last few decades. Um, And and the other is unionization. And uh, your numbers are are correct. I would simply um, add to them that in the private sector, which is where most people work, uh, the unionization rate is only 7%. So that's that's, you know, getting uh, way below uh, not only where it used to be, but where it is in, in uh, other advanced economies. There are some other factors that help determine wages, the level of the minimum wage, to the extent to which labor standards are enforced, the structure of employment. You've got the gig work that can sometimes uh, play out in paychecks in ways that are uh, negative for workers. Uh, but if you put it all together, the the factors that used to give workers more bargaining power, tight labor markets, high unionization rates, uh, rigorously enforced labor standards, many of those are things of the past.
1: Right. You'd think that it'd be pretty good to be in a union if you're a worker at AT AT&T. You have a pension, you have retiree health benefits, you probably have a bunch of other perks that people in the rest of corporate America gave up a long time ago, right? Well,
2: yes, there are definitely some unions that are still uh, able to deliver that, that, that those kinds of benefits to their members. Um, public sector unions uh, often do a pretty good job, which is one reason why they're under siege in many states throughout the uh, throughout the nation. Uh, and it, it, if you compare union workers to non-union workers just based on their wages controlling for everything else, there's still a significant premium there, somewhere, I'd guess, between 10 and 15% at least. But an interesting finding that's germane to our conversation is that when unionization rates uh, get higher, so right right now they're about 11%, as you said here, but back when they're 20% or if you go over to Europe and you see uh, union rates that are considerably higher than that, uh, you end up with a lot more pattern bargaining or collective bargaining, where uh, union wages enforce the pay of workers outside the union sector. So there's a spillover there that can happen as well, and you certainly don't see that when you're down to the kind of levels of uh, of collective bargaining that we have.
0: Are nations with uh, that still have uh, higher union membership rates experiencing faster wage growth than the United States has been with declining union membership, or has it been fairly consistent worldwide?
2: Well, I think on average uh, you wouldn't really find that. uh, but I think if you look distributionally, their their wage distributions tend to be um, tighter, less dispersed than ours. They have less uh, wage inequality, less less earnings uh, dispersion. Um, and in fact, in many cases, as their unionization rates go down, they end up with more of that. Um, an important early study found that about a fifth of the increase in, in uh, wage dispersion, at least among men, was attributable to the decline in unionization. Unionization. Now, a fifth may not sound like a ton, but that was the largest factor that I think anyone's ever uncovered in that uh, in that research.
1: Is it harder to organize labor unions these days? Or oh, is, yes. Are, yeah. Yeah, is there it, more apathy among workers, or what is it? Well,
2: I don't know that there's more apathy among, among workers. And, in fact, if you poll people, depending on the question, you know, these surveys can be a little squirrely, many people will say, Something to the effect of we recognize that we need some form of an organization uh, to push back on um, the kinds of things that our employers are trying to do to us. Now, they might not like the word union, but that's a pretty consistent finding. I think what's really different now is that there is a deep pocketed, multi billion dollar union avoidance industry. And, you know, you'll see stores like Walmart close down uh, a franchise. Somewhere if they 're worried that it 's going to become unionized, so the uh, the anti union uh, initiatives taken by uh, uh, employers, not not all by the way, but those who are particularly averse to uh, to union uh, membership um, have gotten a lot more aggressive. I do think that workers probably think differently about unions than they used to. I know there was a case pretty recently, I think it was Volkswagen in maybe Tennessee, where the uh, uh, workers voted not to form a bargaining unit. Uh, unit uh, and um, I, I wonder if some of what was going on, there was a sense that the you know the union wasn't going to really help them all that much.
0: Let's drill down a little bit further into some of the wage data. You have by all indicators, a tight labor market. Mm-hmm. The retail sector is a major, is a fairly significant part of our employment. I think it's around 14, 15 million people are employed in retail. Uh, they're fairly low paid. Uh, maybe the wage gains, at least in some of the recent data, have been have been pretty flat. Would could would they be potentially faster if there was more union organization in that sector, or do you think? there are other forces at play.
2: I think that you'll find union wages are higher, as I mentioned earlier. That there, there's a premium there. Whether they're growing faster or not, um, that's probably a, a tougher call. I don't. I don't know that I, I've seen so much of that in the data. So probably more of a level story than a growth story. I think you know economists are scratching our heads over the, the what we call the flatness of the Phillips curve, which is just a fancy way of saying the breakdown in the correlation between tight labor markets. and price growth and wage growth. Uh, it, whether you're looking at prices or wages, uh, you might expect there to be more uh, growth when you're you're down on an unemployment rate that's 4.4%. But there are many explanations for that, by the way. One is that the Federal Reserve, uh, at least in terms of inflation or prices, has kind of locked in everybody's heads that they're going to target 2% no matter what. So inflation is really, quote, well anchored. Another is, of course, the bargaining power story that I've, I've been talking about. We've been discussing throughout our our conversation. Uh, And uh, uh, another is the the bargaining power uh, discussion that we've been having uh, throughout our conversation. Uh, And then there is kind of a sectoral story, as you were suggesting. Um, There are uh sectors in our economy that are facing a, 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 a set of pressures they didn't face 40 or 50 years ago for instance uh our manufacturers uh are in, in much more of a global competitive uh situation than they were back in those days of you know literally 2 and 3% unemployment rates if you go back to to the 1960s um and so uh it, w- while globalization has many upsides no question particularly in terms of the supply of of resources uh, liquid supply chains and all that um uh, for many workers blue collar workers production workers workers in manufacturing uh, that kind of wage competition has hurt them uh, that's become a very politically salient uh, fact in recent years need i say
1: Jared, in some cases, corporations argue for unions, but not for the best reasons. I used to report in Mexico, and there's a practice there called protection contracts, which has become standard. It's basically an agreement between a company, in this case automakers, and a union that doesn't legitimately represent workers, um, um, which agrees even years before they break ground on the plant to keep wages really, really low. I'm wondering if you've ever seen anything similar in the U.S. or basically, if you haven't, what, what's the bad side of unionizing?
2: Yeah, I think that those are these kind of basically management kind of puppet unions. Um, and uh, we I don't know that we've had so much of that in this country. Uh, we've certainly seen that in um, countries without uh, much of the kind of more Industrialized union base that got started here in the in, in the Great Depression uh, and you know, fought their way, often violently, uh, into uh, a much uh, more solid part of uh, the job market. At least until their membership really started to erode uh, back in the in the 1980s or so with the PATCO strike. But if you go back to the the days of uh, early unionism and uh, the sit down strike at Flint in the 1930s, uh, there, there was uh, these were militant unions uh, sometimes uh, and militant management by the way, on the other side, and they were fighting tooth and nail for um, what i 'm calling bargaining power, but back then they they would have very much have seen as uh, pushing back on uh, essentially a corrupt system that wasn 't uh, affording them the uh, The pay that they believe they deserved. So uh, we we have, uh, to my knowledge, and I must say that I haven't focused on this as much, especially as unionization rates have gotten so low, but we haven't had the kind of company union so much here that you're describing in Mexico.
0: Jared, when we originally were coming up with the idea for this uh, topic on this podcast, we were looking at the, the, the Hollywood writers, the TV writers, and they were threatening to go on strike. And we were going to do a show about how they were on strike and what that says about the economy. And in fact, at the very last minute, they reached a settlement with the studios and, and got some, uh, what what seemed like some, some decent uh, pay increases or benefit or benefits from that deal. Uh, and also a year ago, we had this big Verizon strike, and even though both sides claimed victory, there, there was some indication that that this strike was able to get some benefits for uh, for the Verizon workers that maybe they they wouldn't have had if they weren't able to get organized. Now, putting these events together, are these two things representative of, of what unions can still do in the economy, or are they really kind of the exception Uh, to the rule when it comes to workers' bargaining power these days?
2: More the exception than the rule. Uh, Interestingly, I think the way... People in the union movement are starting to think about the way forward, and remember, we talked about a 7% unionization rate in the private sector, and that's, as we've been saying, that's a, a multi-decade trend, and those kinds of trends are hard to turn around. So folks are trying to think outside the box, and they're thinking less about, uh, well, actually, in a way, it's it's less about the kind of the Verizon model and more the writer's model. That is, uh, instead uh, of thinking about organizing an industry, organizing a sector, organizing fast food or organizing um, retail they 're thinking about how they can organize place by place now this would take a change in labor law, um, and so you 're not going to see that from this administration, uh, but the idea is that uh, especially with uh, a more sort of uh, what some people call the fi- the economy or the gig economy the the w two economy the idea that you're, you 're know, working maybe less for a particular employer there 's more um, sort of uh self-employment and uh independent contracting things like that um with 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 those kinds of developments going on um people are starting to think more about trying to uh form unions uh at a particular restaurant versus uh the restaurant industry um that that if they're able to pull that off that may may give them some uh may give them some success mm-hmm.
1: So, Jerry, we definitely have a tight labor market. We saw a high number of openings and quits this morning. So with or without unions, what's it going to take for us to see higher wages in the U.S.?
2: Well, I think the wage story is a really interesting one. Um, uh, Wages have accelerated, as I'm sure you know. Uh, If you go back uh, a year and a half or so, wages were growing 2% year-over-year nominal. Uh, Now they're growing Somewhere between 2.5 and 3%. I have an index that I put together, which takes five different series and smashes it together in some sort of sophisticated weighting way. Um, And uh, it's it's growing. uh, It was growing 2%. Now it's growing 2.8%. So we're we're getting some some uh, uh, bump. But uh, the the thing that's got me nervous now, and this is only a few months, so these numbers, as you know, are jumpy. Is that if you look at the blue collar Wage or the wage of non managers and services, so the eighty percent of the workforce that 's not in the uh, that 's that's, that's in those categories um, they they went from two to two point five and they 've just been sitting at two point five for a number of months, even as the jobless rate has come down now if you look at the other 20% of the workforce with higher wages, they've started growing at a pace that's closer to three or even north of three. And so I'm worried that there's this wage inequality problem evolving. uh, And I got to be watching that.
0: It's definitely a story that we will continue to follow here at Bloomberg and on Benchmark. Uh, Jared Bernstein, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you might enjoy listening to podcasts. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us and let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at at Scott Landman. Patty, you are at?
1: At Patty Leia.
0: And our guest, Jared Bernstein, is at at econjared. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening. See you next time.